You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. You know, we'll keep moving through our series on 1 Corinthians. Uh, today, we're just calling this series uh, 1 Corinthians, Broken People and the God Who Brings Them Together. Broken People and the God Who Brings Them Together. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'm Aunt Pastor here at Midtown Tunash. Very glad that you are worshiping uh, with us this morning. Uh, I, I mentioned the title of the series today because we're going to dive into uh, an uncomfortable topic. Uh, that, that is necessary because of the truth that we are broken people that have come together uh, to worship God, to know God more, to pursue him. We're actually going to be getting to a, a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You can go ahead and turn there or scroll there, whatever you do. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, we'll be dealing with uh, today an aspect of love that I think often makes people uncomfortable when we talk about it in the church. There are certain aspects and actions of love uh, that can be difficult to, to deal with, that can be difficult to, uh, to really sometimes wrap our minds around or even be okay with. I think sometimes we over-romanticize the, the idea of love, right? We first, first Corinthians, uh, I believe, is, is chapter 13. Love is patient, love is kind, love is all these things that makes us feel good, but also at times love does things that make us uncomfortable. The passage that we'll be in today is a passage about protecting the church, it's a passage about protecting the church. If you've been with us, you've heard me talk about how much God loves his church. This comes through over and over and over again in the different chapters and verses in the book of 1 Corinthians. And when you talk about protecting something, when love protects, one of the things that we, that we can't deny when we really think about it is that sometimes when love protects, it has to be aggressive. When love protects, it, it, it has to make tough decisions sometimes. When, when love protects, oftentimes someone or something else gets hurt or is harmed. I remember the first time I walked with my uh, boys. I have twin boys. They're five years old. They're great. Uh, we were at the fair for the first time since they were able to walk. Like, we probably had been to the fair before, but never when they were able to, to walk around on their own. So I'm holding their hands, and I, I, I'll, be, I'll be honest with you. I've never been that close to throat punching 30 people at one time in my life. Like I've never been. Like, I'm a mild-mannered guy. I don't get riled up too often. I, I generally stay pretty chill, but I was like, why are you so close? Like, why, why are you so close to my kids? Like, why are you looking at us? Like, you do not want these problems because I am ready to do whatever I need to do. Like, I, I felt the, the possibility of a threat, and there was, like, this intensity that was just, like, rising up in me that I didn't even see coming and that I hadn't even felt before. When you have the responsibility to protect someone out of love, the, the, the lack of willingness to do so, I would say, A, uh, uh, displays a lack of love, and I would also say, if your love that calls you to protect someone if you aren't prepared and ready to potentially deal harm to anyone that is, that, is, that is causing a threat to the one that you love, then you can't really be responsible for protecting to some degree. Protection and love requires aggression. I remember uh, after a sermon I did, I think it was about a year ago, I had a lady in our church. And in the sermon I was just talking about uh, some, some of the same topic about protection, just how like for me, I, I generally, I'm obviously not a, a, a violent person, but like if, if my family is threatened, then I have to do what I have to do. Like, that's, that's just the way that it is. She came up to me afterwards and she almost had tears in her eyes. And she said, and I, when I was growing up, 
I always desired for the ones who were caring for me to be willing to provide that type of protection for me, but none of them ever did. And it crushed me. She said, I've I've always desired that level of love that was willing to do whatever was necessary to protect me. I remember when I was younger, uh, whenever I was with my dad and he was taking my grandma back, his mom, back to her place, if it was dark, I remember we would sit in the car with, with, with my mom and he would go in first and then he would come out and get my grandma and then they would walk into the house together. When I was very young, I didn't understand what was going on. I became a teenager and my dad was like, all right, come on, you're coming with me, grab a stick. And we would literally, we would just go room to room. The house was, was, was pretty dark. It wasn't always well lit. Go room to room, making sure no one was there. But it was like, he told me to grab a stick. And I was like, what are we, what are we doing here? And he was like, we got to make sure you know I up in here. And so he had something. I can't remember exactly what he had. I had a stick. And it was like, that, that was him. My, my dad uh, would, would talk very frequently. When he talked about his childhood, he, we would always talk about his mom and how much love his mom had for him. And you can just, you can just easily see how much he loves uh, his mom, my, my grandma, and he was like, if somebody's in here, they got to deal with us. They're not getting to her, right? That, that, was, that was the posture. That's what love does. Biblically, love can be gentle. Love can be kind. Love can be patient, all of that. But also in the Hebrews, love can chastise and love can punish as well. Love has an aggression to it. And hear me on this. What God loves more than anything else is his church. What God loves more than anything else, it's his church, his people, his children, his body. And he will protect it at all costs. He will protect it at all costs. If that means he has to hurt my feelings, if that means he has to hurt your feelings to do it, he will protect it at all costs. Passage we'll be in today is what uh, deals with what do you do when unrepentant sin is harming and damaging the church? What, what is the church called to do when, when unrepentant sin is actively, consistently, even esteemed highly in the church? What do you do if when that sin is harming the church? The answer is a painful one, but it's a necessary one because he's going to, again, defend and protect his church, his people at all costs. First Corinthians chapter 5, read verses 1 through 6, and we'll just kind of work our way through it. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. So uh, at this time, if you've been with us, you've you've probably heard me say in Corinth, Corinth, uh, there are many different religions, many different uh, quote-unquote gods that are are worshipped. And there's much, much sexual immorality. People just feel like they can have sex with whoever they want to, whenever they want to, however they want to. and that's kind of the culture that is there. And he's saying, you have somebody here who is sleeping with his, his father's wife. He says, to, to the degree that, that the pagans, those who just worship whatever, they, they, are, they don't even tolerate this type of behavior. Verse, verse 2, he says, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? It's a big, big verse. Ought you not rather mourn, he says? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit, and as of present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Paul says, when he talks about the destruction of the flesh, not talking about his physical body, the flesh oftentimes is referred to in the Bible as our sinful nature. 
So Paul is saying he is, he is to be removed from the church so that this sinful, sinful nature might be destroyed as he is no longer able to, to enjoy a lot of the benefits of being a part of this local body here in Corinth. Now, we have some very strong language here. Obviously, I want to be clear. I want to establish a few things that Paul is not saying before I get into everything that he is saying. First thing that he is saying that we see here, he is talking about unrepentant sin. He's not talking about somebody uh, fell into temptation and sinned in one way. He's talking about unrepentant sin. Here's how we know. In verse 2, he says, and you are arrogant. He says, ought, ought you not rather to mourn? And in verse 6, he talks about them boasting about it. They're, they're, they're boasting. They're proud. of This is not a sin that is being fought against. This is not a sin that they're resisting against. This is a sin that's almost being celebrated, that, that they are proud of. This is not a believer fighting against sin. This is someone who said, I'm choosing sin over God. I'm going to stay that way. And this is others in the church that have said, yes, we affirm this. We're tolerant or whatever, however they, they want to phrase it. Yes. And they bragged about it. That's number one. They want to make sure Paul, we understand Paul is talking about unrepentant sin. Second observation I want to make sure we see is that the goal is that this brother will return to following Christ. The goal is that he would Return. The end of verse 5 says, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. That the goal is that this, this, that this punishment that is dealt out to this individual would lead to him repenting and turning back to the Lord, which he currently is not doing. He's not doing it as a part of the church. So, so the, the, the prayer, the goal in this act is that this would lead him to come to his senses, that there would be this, this aha moment, that there would be this prodigal son moment, right? When he realizes this is not how my life is to be, and he returns and comes back to his father. The goal is not ultimately to, to harm the man, it is for his good in the end. So quick recap, there's, a bro, there's this, this brother in the church, he's sleeping with his father's wife, he's not repenting, he's not planning on stopping, this is just how he has chosen to live. The church is, is proud and is boasting about it. I'm not sure exactly what that looked like then, but I know what I've seen it look like now. I was just looking up uh, different uh, pastors and, and churches uh, on the issue to some degree of, of sexual immorality and especially uh, homosexuality. I found a, a church in Charlotte, uh, and this is on their website, so they, they wouldn't mind me saying it. it was Pastor Val Rosenquist of First United Methodist Church in Charlotte. It says, our church would, absolutely, would be absolutely in favor of editing out all those parts of the book of discipline which prohibit the, or the ordination of gay clergy. We are, we are for full inclusion on all fronts. Right, so if you want to know more about where our church stands as far as homosexuality or any type of sexuality, uh, we did a series called Theology on Sex where we explain. I don't have time to unpack it all now. I will say that there are various types of sexual sin that the Bible says that we are to repent from. Right, I believe there's, there's heterosexual lust. I believe there's homosexual lust. There's all different types of lust. But either way, where the Bible stands is whether homosexual or heterosexual, everyone repents from, from lust as it is and turns to Jesus. Right, No matter where you are. And this church is like, no, we're, 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 we're tolerant. No, we're, we, we want to take away anything that tells anyone about how they should manage their own sex lives. And this is what they would be proud of. Paul goes on to communicate some of the harm that comes from tolerating unrepentant sin. If you read verse 6 and verse 7, we'll pick up halfway through verse 6. It says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Again, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are 
unleavened. Paul and Jesus also does this in the Gospels. He's using the term leaven or what we commonly know as yeast to refer to sin. What he's saying is the, the way that, that yeast or leaven spreads throughout all the dough and all the bread, that's what sin, when it's unrepentant, when it's not fought against, can do in the church. You can see it already happening here. There's this sin that's present. This man is sleeping with his father's wife, and now others in the church are bragging and boasting about it. It's already affecting other people. This, this sin, when it's unrepentant in the church, it doesn't just stay with the person. It doesn't only affect the person that is committing the unrepentant sin, but it affects the culture of the church. He tells them to cleanse, to take out the old leaven so that they can really have a fresh start. That this unrepentant sin is spreading like a cancer in the church. This unrepentant sin, again, it doesn't just affect you. We talked, I think it was a couple weeks ago, about how all of us, everyone who's a member of a church, actually plays a role in helping develop and cultivate the culture of the church where the church body is interconnected in that way. And if this thing is affecting and negatively harming the church, and like I said before, there is nothing that God loves more than his church. He is going to protect his church at all costs, no matter the price. This process, this cleansing that God does of his body, is what is commonly referred to as church discipline. It's referred to as church discipline. Church discipline is extremely necessary. Uh, there are many people today who don't take Christians or don't take Jesus seriously because of the hypocrisy they see in the church. Right? The church claims to be the people of a holy God, but if the church doesn't deal with and have a, have a means of challenging and calling out and correcting and calling to repentance those who are in the church, then we're destined to be hypocritical. Hypocritical will become the standard of the church. If there is no concept of fighting against this, this sin together, there's no concept of me being able to call you out or you being able to call me out for my sin in my life, then hypocrisy will become the standard. How confusing would it be for a new believer who comes into a church and they see, okay, well, well, well this sin is preached against and people seem to be fighting against this, but this sin, seem, everyone seems to be doing it. No one seems to have a, a problem with it. So you, you, you kind of develop this understanding that some sins are bad and some sins are kind of okay. Some sins I really need to fight against, but I kind of make a peace treaty with this one. This one seems like it, it fits in around here. If that happens, living a double life it becomes who we are. One woman told me she grew up in a church where everybody knew the pastor was sleeping around with different women in church. Everybody knew it. Nobody was saying anything. She said, it's just what, everybody knew that it, was, that it was going on. May not be so. May never be so in any of God's churches. I know of a church where a man used to go with his family. He had a wife. I think he had a couple kids. And he ended up having an affair with another single woman in the church. And then finally, one Sunday, he comes to the church service, sitting beside the woman he's had the affair with while his family's on the other side of the church, while his wife and his kids are on the other side of the church. If you, can't, if you don't have a structure in your church where a pastor or somebody can go to this brother and say, no, you need to leave her alone, you need to go and apologize to them and beg for, for their forgiveness, and until you do, you are not welcome to come back, something's wrong. If the leadership of the church can't go to this man and say, hey, you are not welcome here because this is not safe for these people who are your family. If the church can't step in and say, you're not welcome until that happens, then the church cannot actually shepherd the flock, can actually protect the flock. 
If those types of conversations can't be had, the church must be able to engage in church discipline. We must be able to to have these types of conversations and and make these types of rulings in the church. If we are to actually protect the church, if we're actually going to, to, to begin to love the church the way that Christ does, then we'll have difficult conversations. We'll repent from our sin. We'll call others in our body to repent from sin. Strong, honest, hurtful words oftentimes need to be said within the church because that's what love does. Because sometimes love is actually aggressive. Because sometimes love rubs us the wrong way and challenges us in ways that we don't want to be challenged. And again, God loves his church more than anything else. And he will stop at nothing to protect his church, even if it will cause pain and at times harm. Matthew chapter 18, we'll start it at verse 15. Uh, is the closest thing we have to, to a type of blueprint for a specific type of church discipline. Uh, you'll notice some differences in this in, in, between what Paul says uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, but this is the closest thing we kind of have to a blueprint when it comes to church discipline. Matthew 18, 15 through 18, verse 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So again, that's the end game, that you would gain your brother. So he's saying if someone has sinned against you, you go and let them know their fault between you and him. You just go, it's one-on-one, you and them, you have a conversation, you let them know. If they listen and they repent and they turn from their sin, you've gained your brother. You're back in restored fellowship. This is the goal the entire time. God wants to get rid of this cancer of unrepentant sin before it ever gets to the type of discipline where someone is excommunicated or or is no longer welcome uh, with the body of believers. He wants to just, let's just have a one-on-one conversation. This is sin that you're not repenting from. I want to call you on it to turn away from this sin. You are choosing sin over God. Somehow Satan has deceived you into believing that this is actually better than you following God. And I want to encourage you and pray with you. Let's fight against this. How can I fight alongside you? against this sin that we see with the goal of gaining your brother. This is what we generally call the first step of church discipline, one-on-one conversation. Hey, this is sin that's not repentant of this. We do this in our life group because this happens pretty frequently in our church. And we pray that it stops there, that it doesn't have to go forward at all. Verse 16, Jesus tells us what happens if that doesn't work, if the person does not listen. Verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So if the person doesn't repent, and the way we've done it, we've generally given it some time. Let's give the Holy Spirit uh, some time, some space to work in this person's life. I don't know about you. Sometimes I get called, up on, I get called out on something. It takes a few days for whatever for, the, for it to register with me. And it's like, you know what? Yeah, that's, that's, that's actually right. That is something that I need to repent of. I'm, I'm often in denial of my sin. So we don't, we don't, this is not a conversation you talk to somebody and say, hey, I'm going to call you to repent, and then they say no, and then you bring the other guys in that's in the back that's just waiting for you to call them up. Like this, this is not what's going on. We generally give space. We give time. This is generally not the same day for us. It's been probably weeks in between. There's also a bringing of two or three others. I believe this adds more weight to the conversation. This makes it a way to your deal, a way to your exchange when not only one brother or sister, but now you have two or three or four that are there present in this conversation. I think it also takes it out of just the, uh, just it was your opinion against my opinion, where you have two other believers filled with his spirit that are saying, no, this is what the Bible is saying and what you're doing and the way that you're deciding to live does not line up with the Bible. It takes it just out of what is just your interpretation or it's just your opinion against my opinion. It, makes, it gives much, much more weight 
And so we call on our brothers and sisters to repentance. Move on to verse 17. Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The church most likely is talking to those who, who represent the church mostly, I mean, more so maybe than others. So probably leaders in the church, probably a pastor, a deacon is involved. We've done it before. We've had the life group leader there as well. So if you don't listen to one or two others, you tell, you get the leaders of the church involved. So as Jesus is, is, is at work, working through his people, trying to uproot this cancer of unrepentant sin in the church, he says, first, go to him one-on-one. You talk to him. If that doesn't work, then you, you bring another brother or two with you or sister or two with you, and you talk with him. If that doesn't work, you get leadership in the church involved. And if all that has happened, they've been confronted three times, one-on-one in a small group and with the leaders in the church, and they still are not unrepentant. He says, you treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector, which will basically mean you treat them as someone who doesn't really know God. You give them what they've actually been asking you for the whole time. They said, I want to live like somebody who's not a believer. I want to live like someone who's not following Jesus as they refuse to live a lifestyle of repentance. I heard one pastor say, birds fly, fish swim, Christians repent. Everyone on, on the planet sins. The difference between Christians and those who do not know Jesus is Christians repent and turn to God ongoingly throughout our lives for the rest of our lives. Fish swim, birds fly, Christians repent. So when someone says, I'm not going to repent, I'm not going to turn away from my sin, I I choose to just live in this sin, they are actually saying with with their lives, I don't want to be treated like a Christian, I don't want to act like a Christian. And so Jesus says, well, then that's how you treat them. If when the leaders of the church come in who have somewhat spiritual authority over them, God says that he's actually backing them up when this takes place. Look at verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So in verse 17, he says, treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector. Treat them, treat them like someone who actually doesn't know God. And then in verse 18, he says, and whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Basically, he says, and whatever you do, no, I'm standing with you on this. This is the right thing to do. Heaven itself is backing the body of Christ, the believers, when we work to protect the church by fighting against unrepentant sin. He says, heaven is backing you up. Jesus says, I'm all up in it when that's happened. You can trust, you can rest assured knowing that this is what I am about in the church because he loves his church. He can't stand for anything to put his church at risk. And he will sacrifice whatever is necessary to make sure that his church is protected and taken care of. This is not something that Jesus takes lightly. Unrepentant sin is not something that Jesus takes lightly. He cares so much for his church. And those who would live a life of unrepentant sin, are communicating that God isn't actually better than sin, communicating that it's okay to claim Christianity but not actually submit to Christ. Like it's okay to to, to claim Jesus as Savior but not claim him as Lord. And, And the word says that spreads like cancer within the church. So Jesus says you have to get rid of it. We have to fight against this cancer in the church. I know this is a hard teaching. I know this is a hard teaching, but we've got to be honest with ourselves. I mean, things would have been a lot easier if Mufasa just would have kicked Scar out in the beginning, right? Okay. 
It would have been a lot easier if Mufasa just would have kicked him out. As soon as he had Zazu in his mouth, he knew this was a problem. He's whispering in Simba's ear. He should have kicked him out from the beginning. Everything would have been better. Simba wouldn't have to come back and overthrow Scar. Real talk. Sometimes love causes you to make decisions that no one likes. One of the things that we as pastors uh, at Midtown have said uh, is that if we're going through the process of church discipline, and somebody, and there aren't tears on our faces as we're going through it. We're doing it wrong. We're doing it, this, this, these aren't strangers we're talking about. These aren't just associates we're talking about. This is family that we're talking about. This is people that we've walked with, that we've shared our lives with in so many ways. This is, this is the tough decision that a parent might have to make if, if their child is making so many horrible decisions. They have to say, hey, you can't stay here anymore. I can't support what you're currently doing. This is family we're talking about. This is extremely painful. It is extremely necessary. As a church, we try to obey this as much as possible. Um, gladly, we haven't actually had to get to that, that last step of, of telling someone that they're no longer a, a member of our church. We've, we've gotten to the step before that, and it is one of the hardest. It's probably the thing I hate about my job more than anything else. It's one of the hardest things that a church will ever have to do, but we have to do it, hear this, because it's who we are. We have to do it because it's who we are. We are a people who have been saved from sin. We've been saved, yes, from the guilt of sin, but we've also been saved from slavery to sin, and sin no longer reigns over us. Romans says that we are not slaves of righteousness. We are no longer slaves to sin, and we must live like that is true because that is who we are. And church discipline allows us collectively to live as if that is, live like that is the case because we know that it is. And Paul points back to that 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. Let's get back into the chapter we started in. He's going to talk about this Jewish holiday known as the Passover. Verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may have, sorry, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In the Old Testament, before Israel, before God's people became a nation, they lived in Egypt. They were enslaved in Egypt. They were, they were enslaved and oppressed physically. They were made to work in extremely harsh conditions with extremely harsh demands and, and punishments. But also, they were oppressed spiritually as well. They were forced to worship Pharaoh and the other gods that Egypt worshipped. So they, they were oppressed spiritually and physically. And during the 10th plague, when God is freeing them, he had them kill their Passover lamb. They had to kill a lamb and put the blood on, on, the, on their doorpost. And everywhere that doorpost was, when God brought that judgment, which was the 10th plague, none of their, all their families were spared. They were all saved. Um, and, and from that plague, Pharaoh ended up freeing them from slavery. And they were sent out to enjoy the freedom that God had purchased for them, that God had accomplished for them. That was, that's what's known as the Passover. And, and, and what God told them at this Passover time was that they were to take this bread, they were going to eat it, and it was unleavened bread. Unleavened bread. So it was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 3, he tells them about this, this festival, this Feast of Unleavened Bread, that they were to commemorate. He told them to commemorate it once a year to celebrate God freeing them. Check out what he says about why the bread was unleavened. Verse 3, you shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, 
For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste. Let me pause right there. He says, for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste. If you're familiar with the story, the reason he told them to make the bread unleavened, he said, because you don't even have time to let the yeast rise in the bread before you get out of here. He said, I want you running about as fast as you can towards your freedom from this spiritual and physical oppression that you don't even have time to let the yeast work through the dough and rise. You eat it unleavened and you get out as fast as you can from the slavery that I am saving you from. And Paul reminds them of the Passover lamb and of the feast of unleavened bread. Right here when he's talking about church discipline, when he's talking about protecting the church from sin, he's calling the church, he's saying to them, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to fight against sin and we're going to run about as fast as we can into the freedom from slavery to sin that God has accomplished for us, that our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, has accomplished for us. You remember the feast of unleavened bread. In Deuteronomy, God told his people, remember that this bread is to be unleavened. Because you left with haste, because you ran out quickly, because I told you to get up and go and you go right now. and You don't stay around even to, to let the bread rise that you're going to eat. Once a year, they would have this celebration. Once a year, they would have this feast. It was a reminder. When God sets you free, you run into that freedom about as fast as you possibly can and you don't turn back. And you do not turn back into the slavery that once bound you. You're no longer a slave and you leave in a hurry. Romans 6, chapter 6, says it like this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. He said our old self was crucified with Christ in our union with Christ, in our connection with him. In some mysterious way, when he died, he's saying that our flesh, our, our sinful nature was crucified with him. And now we don't have to be slaves to sin anymore. He's saying, you've been made new now. What what used to control you and dominate you, you don't have to be enslaved to it anymore. And one of the ways that the church practically lives that out is by practicing church discipline. That's how we live out the fact that we're not enslaved to this anymore. That we can actually turn to Christ and worship him and say no to the sin that has ruled us in our past. Paul's reminding us that we've been made free and that we run away from our sin about as fast as we possibly can. We don't linger around sin. We aren't lackadaisical with our sin. We know that sin is destructive to us spiritually. We know that it deceives us. We know that it hardens our hearts towards God. We know that it robs us of our joy. We know that it hurts us and it hurts others. We know that it is more offensive to God than anything else in all of existence. So we run. Individually as Christians, we run away from our sin. And collectively as a church, we call each other to repent, to turn away to pursue a love for God. And so we shouldn't be tolerant of unrepentant sin, of someone living as if they are being mastered by sin and still claiming to be a Christian. As a church, let's run as fast as we can into our freedom. Continue on in verse 9, same chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. 
Now, Paul is not telling them to never uh, fellowship with or associate with anybody who sins uh, in, in these ways from a standpoint of uh, someone who has sinned in these ways and is fighting against their sin. That's not who he's talking about. Here's a couple ways that we know that that's not who he's talking about. One, if you've been with us, you know this is one of the most ratchet churches uh, that existed in the Bible, right? And yet, at the very beginning of the book, at the very beginning of the book, he calls them saints. He says that they've been sanctified in Christ. What he's referring to, you can see it uh, beginning in verse 10. He says, not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. He says, since then you would need to go out of the world. So notice how he refers to that sin. He refers to it in statements using an identity. This person is an idolater, right? Which is contrasted with what he's already said about those who are Christians when he says they are saints, right? These are, these are identity statements, not just actions that they participate in, but the foundational core of who they are is they are someone who does not worship God, this, is, this isn't someone who, who is striving to, to live in holiness and walk with God and yet falls into temptation from time to time. This is someone who is an idolater. You see the same thing in verse 11 when he says, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. You have to remember, again, I'll, I'll just show it just real quick. I already referred to it once. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. This is what he says to the Corinthian church. It says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. You have to remember that he started establishing them in their identity from the second verse of the letter of this book that we have. So basically what he's saying is even if there's someone who engages in idolatry, if they're a true believer, they're a saint more than they're an idolater. Someone who gets drunk at one time is not a drunkard because they, they got drunk at some point in time, unless that is at the foundational core of who they are more so than they're actually a follower of Christ. And one point in Scripture that I believe needs to be stated is that those who are saints will show that they are saints through a pattern of repentance in their lives. A pattern of repenting and, and saying no to the former self, to the way that we used to be. Continue reading what Paul says in verse 12. He says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church who are to judge? Paul's clarifying. He's not saying, he's not saying you shouldn't associate with anybody who's not a believer who is sexually immoral. He's like, of course, they're not going to follow Jesus. They're, they're going to walk in sin. They're not going to repent because they don't know Jesus. He's not saying don't associate with them. But he does tell them to not associate and to not even eat with a brother who does not repent and turn away from sin. Now, here's the difficult uh, interpretational part of the passage. A lot of their worship service were centered around a huge meal where they had communion. They would often have the word read or maybe preach, and they would pray together, and they would sing together. It was oftentimes a, a potentially an all-day affair where they had this big meal. So Paul might be saying to them, hey, don't have this person be with you as if they are in fellowship, as if nothing is wrong and everything is okay when this person is not turning away from sin. Paul says something at the end of verse 12, I think messes with a lot of us because we don't like this word. He says, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Whom you are to judge? Paul says that word judge means to pronounce an opinion concerning right and wrong. He's saying that the church should lovingly, humbly, not in a gossipy way, not in a, not in a mean, not in a hateful, spiteful way, lovingly, humbly approaching our brothers and sisters saying, bro, I, I, I know you. I see in your actions and your words, it doesn't look like you're repenting from this sin. You're, you're living, you're running towards this sin. 
in your life. And God loves his church more than anything. And he'll stop at nothing to protect his church. Even if it causes some amount of pain or hurt feelings, he'll stop at nothing to protect his church because he loves his church. And so Paul gives this final statement, his final command on the matter in verse 13. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you, he says. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This man can no longer be in fellowship. He is no longer seen as a brother. We can no longer see him that way. He's no longer one that gets to enjoy all the many blessings that are of being a part of a church family with the hope and with the prayer that one day he will, return, he will return to the church. He will repent from his sin, that he would have that, that prodigal son moment where he comes to his senses and just says, I, I, don't, I don't want this anymore. I, I, don't, I don't want to continue living this life of, of unrepentance. I want to repent and I want to turn to the Lord. And, and for some of you in the room, that might be exactly where you are. That might be exactly where you are. I've been running from God. I've been turning to this sin. I've been living in it. I've been enjoying it. I've been delighting myself in it. I've been unrepentant. And God so loves this church more than anything else, and he wants you to repent, and he wants you to walk in consistent fellowship with other brothers and sisters that can continue to encourage you in your walk with him, to be a part of the family, this love community that God loves more than anything else. That's part of the invitation today. If any of us are living in unrepentant sin, to spend time with the Lord, you might need to do it right here before we even, before we even finish singing today. You might have to have some conversations with God and say, God, I'm turning away Please forgive me. Whatever I need to do to fight against this, give me the strength to fight against this sin. The application for some of us might be, you may have someone in your life group, someone you're in fellowship with here in our church that you know is living in unrepentant sin and you haven't said a word to them about it because you don't want to ruffle feathers, because you don't want to hurt feelings. God loves his church. He will stop at nothing to protect his church even if that process is painful. And he calls us as his children to join him, to join him in this work of protecting the church, that we will fight alongside each other against our sin. To kind of bring this to a close, there's two things that I kind of wanted to leave us with, leave us to, to wrestle with as we conclude before we partake in communion. The first thing is, Paul said it early in the passage, we should mourn sin. If you're listening to all this and you're like, this seems too harsh. I can't get with this. I can't get my mind around this. I can't agree to this. You don't hate sin as much as God does. And I want to ask you, do you mourn your sin? The word Paul uses is mourn. It means to grieve as if you have lost someone or something that you loved when we see unrepentant sin. Paul says this is what should be cultivated. This is what should be going on in our hearts, that we should be grieving, that there should be deep, deep sadness in us when we see in our own hearts or in anyone else this, this unrepentant sin. It should affect us. He's saying because of our love for God, we shouldn't just be able to see this and be unscathed and be unbothered when we see unrepentant sin. Paul says, shouldn't you have mourned this? Shouldn't you have grieved when you saw this sin in your heart, in your brothers and sisters? Don't you care? Do we mourn our own sin? If this feels too drastic, if you don't feel that sense of urgency, I want to encourage you to spend time with the Lord. God, I don't, I, don't, I don't hate sin the way you do. I don't mourn sin the way that you do. Will you help me? Will you give me the strength to mourn and hate this sin that I see in my own heart and in the heart of my brothers and sisters? Will you make me hate it and feel about this sin the way that you do? Will we labor, that we would labor to see your name lifted high and glorified? First 
So we should mourn our sin, and also we should look to Christ and look like Christ. We should look to Christ and look like Christ. If that's where you are and you're like, I don't, I don't mourn my sin as I should. I don't mourn the sin of others as I should. We see in this passage just how committed Christ is protecting his church. My hope is that, that we will be blown away because the, 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 the more fierce he is in his aim and in his goal and in his work to protect his church reminds us of how fierce his love is for us as his people. It reminds us of how strong and how aggressive his love is that he has lavished on us. If he didn't love us this way, he wouldn't care. He wouldn't care to make the difficult decisions and the difficult work of purging the sin from among his people. I hope you feel loved by God who loves his church more than anything else and will stop at nothing to protect his church. I hope you will see that in this passage. But I, if you think that this is extreme, that he, would, that he would cause members of his church to no longer be in fellowship in his church, I want to point all of our eyes to the cross of Jesus. What I've been saying over and over is that he loves the church more than anything else. He will stop at absolutely nothing to protect his church, even when it costed him his life. Even when protecting his church costed him his life, he was willing to sacrifice that. That, that, is how, that is what we look to. That is what we see when we want our hearts to be encouraged to hate sin more and love his church more. We remember that he sacrificed his life to die for his church, to protect his church from sin, to save us, that we might now be dead to sin and alive to Christ and no longer be slaves of righteousness. And so that we can go on to be with him forever where we would never know sin or never have to fight against sin ever again. He loves his church and he will stop at nothing. The Father will stop at nothing to protect his church, even slaying his own son on the cross for his people. He loves his church. If you don't sense that same love in your heart, I just want to encourage you to put your eyes on Jesus. To put your eyes on the cross to see how much he truly loves and how much he's truly willing to sacrifice for his church. And then put your eyes on the empty tomb and see that he is powerful enough to defeat sin in your life and the life of other believers and take us home with him to be with him forever in a place without sin in our new life after this one is done. Put your eyes on Jesus, church. If you notice in your heart this, this, this lack, that you don't have this burning desire to fight against sin, put your eyes on Jesus, put your eyes on the cross, put your eyes on the empty tomb, and look through the eyes of faith and hope and see the day when we will never, ever wrestle with sin again. Look to Jesus. As we take communion today, I want us to remember the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is the time when Jesus instituted what we know as the Lord's Supper, or what we know as communion was actually during this Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is what they were participating in, this, this reminder, this celebration of the freedom that they have. And Jesus took, took the bread and said, this is my body. He said, I'm the Passover lamb now. And as we take the, the broken bread and as we take the juice that we'll partake in together in a moment, may we remember what the Feast of Unleavened Bread was all about. Why the bread that Jesus broke and passed out was unleavened? Because he is calling us to move and walk and run, I should say, into the freedom from sin that he offers us as fast as we possibly can. As we take communion today, may we be reminded of this, that it is because of this that we can, that we are able, that we are blessed to have the ability to repent away from our sin and turn to God and run after him as fast as we possibly can. I want to take some time and pray and then we'll open the, the communion table up for us to partake in. Father, we need your help for this. 
We need your strength. We need your power. We've all have felt at times uh, likely hopeless against our sin, hopeless in our fight against our sin, Father. We, we, we felt mastered before. We felt that, that, that slavery to sin, that power to sin has over us. But at the same time, Father, you send us your spirit. You send us your spirit that empowers us. You send us your spirit that walks alongside us as we're in this fight against sin. Father, I pray for the one in the room or whoever, maybe more than one in the room right now, who you are convicting because of unrepentant sin. Pray that your Holy Spirit would act and move in powerful ways, Father. That you would, that you would grant us a joy in repentance, that we would see that it is a blessing to be able to, to, to lay aside the sins and the ways that hold us down as we seek to run after you, Father. I pray for the person who right now who is in the room who's contemplating, and I'm gonna, am I going to stick with this sin? Am I going to stay in this, this, this lifestyle of sin that I'm, in, that I'm in, or am I going to turn and follow Jesus? And I pray that you would give them strength, Father, that you would give them eyes to see the beauty that is following you. The beauty that is trust in you when you say that you are better than any sin we could ever run to or hold on to or that we could ever participate in and try to enjoy. Father, there's any in the room that doesn't know you, that hasn't truly repented from sin and turned to you and trusted you for salvation from sin. Father, I pray that you would lead them to just confess sin right now, confess their sin to you, to turn away from it. And from now until forevermore, that they will be your child that follows you a part of your church that you love more than anything else. Fathers, we partake in communion today. Would you keep us mindful that you have freed us from the power of sin and that you call us to walk in that freedom? It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.